Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman. And we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Centers podcast. Welcome. So my name is Monica. To start, I'll be moderating for tonight. So basically, I'll just be asking our panelists some questions, get some conversations going. Um, that's my role for tonight, is just to create some organic conversations. And all around this main question we've presented for the night, is yoga good for me? Which, when I started promoting this event, it was kind of funny, like the reactions I got from our students, they were like, are you sure you want to be asking that question? Your yoga studio. <laughs> um, but I also think it's, it's normal for these kind of questions to come up, especially for someone who's been practicing for a long time. I know personally, for me, when I first started practicing, like, it was this bright and shiny thing. Come in. And Ashtanga was like the best thing in the world. It could do no wrong. But the more time I spent on the mats, and the more time I spent like getting into some postures, the more doubts started to come up. I started to question the practice, whether it was good for me, whether it was something I should be doing. I don't think I'm alone. I think other people have experienced this, these doubts coming up in our minds. And anything you do really, not just in yoga. So, which is why I think this panel we put together tonight is so awesome. We kind of get to look at these bigger questions together as a community and not be alone in that process. And yeah, I think it's, it's really nice. So thank you all for coming and, and being interested in hearing about these kinds of things. And I also think that this panel we put together is really interesting because most of them aren't necessarily in the world of yoga. So they're in some other work, some other fields, but their work has somehow crossed paths with yoga. So they've experienced yoga through their research, through their clients, through their students. And I think that offers them a really unique <coughs> perspective on certain aspects of the practice. Except him, he's, from what, what I know, is fully immersed in yoga, kind of. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm really interested in hearing how they, what they say and how what they say compares to each other. Um, so we have Tim, first on yoga. We have Michael, neuroscience. Uh, Christine is doing social welfare and counseling psychology. Bob is with physical therapy, and Jesus is with Ayurveda. So these are all the modalities we're kind of bringing together tonight. And yeah. So the structure for the night is the first hour, hour and a half, it'll just be, I'll be asking questions, we'll get into some topics. And on that note, I encourage all of you guys to ask each other questions. So if like one of your colleagues says, says something and you want to comment on it, or you want to ask them a follow-up question, feel free to do that. If you want, maybe just like signal over to me that you want to say something, and I'll make sure you have time to do that. Yeah, cool. And in the last 30 minutes, we'll open it up to questions and answers from you guys. So if any questions for you come up throughout the night, just kind of keep them handy, and we'll give you a chance at the end. Yeah? And we're recording for our podcast. That's why we have all these fancy things around us. So you can listen to it after. Cool. Do you guys have any questions? No? We're good? All right. So... First, I want everybody to get a little bit more familiar with you guys. So if you could tell us your name, what you do, and how you've worked with yoga. So we can start with Tim. My name is Tim, and I'm the owner of this place. And if I can just throw in, I'm so happy to see so many people coming here tonight. It's our first event of this kind. So um, it is very exciting that you guys showed up. Thank you very much for your talk. And... um, (coughs) Yeah, I've been working with yoga. I think I took my first yoga classes in uh, 1994. 
and I practiced uh, one kind of yoga for about five years and about in the end of the 90s, around 99, I started to do Ashtanga Yoga and I stuck with that since. Um, and in the, yeah, I think that's enough. Hey everybody, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you guys for having me very much. Uh, my name is Michael Menino. Um, yeah, I just completed my PhD in neuroscience. Uh, thank you very much. I defended my thesis on Friday. That's why I said that. Um, I'm a professor of philosophy too. I have a master's in philosophy. Um, so I'm a, like a neurophilosopher, I guess you would say. And I teach at Miami Dade College. Um, I'm very interested in movement of all kinds um, and mindfulness and uh, the neurobiology of exercise and the neuroscience of movement and the neuroscience of yoga and uh, some philosophical aspects as well and I do practice yoga myself um, and um, just various other kinds of movement patterns too. So I'm Christine Spadola. Um, thank you for being here. I, I'm going to first just briefly describe my personal experience with yoga and how that has informed my research experience with yoga and my academic career. Um, my first yoga class was at Bayfront Park. It was a free community yoga class. And there was a homeless man practicing yoga right next to me wearing a trench coat. And he was giving me tips and telling me how to, I really should do a warrior too. Um, and there was also a woman there with her bird in the cage and just, you know, a very Miami experience. And it really showed me how yoga can build a sense of community um, and how it was applicable to all walks of life. Um, it was free yoga. Um, and then from there, I actually, in 2008, Tim, it wasn't with you, though, but I took a four-part introductory series here at Miami Life Center to um, increase my knowledge of yoga. Um, and then I was... I. Um, got my master's in counseling psychology and I was doing um, private practice, private counseling. Um, and I would incorporate some yoga um, just in terms of like, okay, if you have a wandering mind, how about we do tree pose, things like that. So I just wanted to, to explore how we could incorporate um, yoga and mental health. Um, and then fast forward, I got my PhD in social work at FIU. Um, and then I was invited to coordinate a yoga study looking at um, the benefits of yoga for teens in mental health treatment and outpatient mental health treatment. So it was a 12-week study, um, so it was <coughs> wonderful to work with that. And that brought me to, I was able to get my yoga certification through that as a graduate assistant. So that was a perk of getting my PhD. I got to practice yoga, so that was nice. Um, and then from there, I just completed a postdoc, um, about a year and a half postdoc. I was in, I spent two cold winters in Boston. Um, I just moved back in July. It was at Harvard Medical School, um, and it was in the division of sleep medicine. And I was primarily working on how yoga can improve sleep among low-income communities. So, and now I'm at FAU teaching social work and incorporating mindfulness in my classes and probably putting some students to sleep. Um, thank you very much for coming, and thank you, you all for organizing this. My name is Bob Schroeder. I'm a physical therapist. Um, my my uh, crossroads with yoga actually probably started when I got involved with something, another holistic and comprehensive movement system. You all probably know this. It's Pilates. 
Um, and then I kind of segued my, my training, my education through Pilates uh, at the same time that I was learning physical therapy when I was a young practitioner. And then I moved into the world of gyrotonic, which um, at one point was called yoga for dancers. So uh, I think all of this sort of led me to uh, realize that there was an ancient comprehensive movement system that I was really being drawn to subconsciously because all of the movement patterns in both of those systems from Pilates to gyrotonic in large part <clears throat> were contributed to by yoga. So there's an ancient <coughs> wisdom there that I, I think I really was drawn to. Um, and so now in my practice, I enjoy treating practitioners and teachers and, and learning about yoga's benefits as well as trying to teach some of the other aspects of its benefits too. I'm not a current yoga practitioner, but who knows, maybe in the future, when I stop having children. <laughs> maybe after today. No, no, hopefully not. <laughs> my wife's due in March. That's Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Um, my name is Jesus Caballero. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner. Um, some 18 years ago, I had a partner who used to do yoga while I was in the gym lifting weights. So one day she convinced me to go to a yoga class. So I went to a yoga class and I went back home and she went like, oh, how was it? And I said, I have no flexibility. I have no strength and I have no balance. And I was really pissed off. So, oh my God, you're not going back. I said, I'm going back tomorrow. <laughs> so there was something that got me right away. A few years later, yoga brought me to, to Ayurveda. And some people say that Ayurveda is the medical part of yoga. That's not true. That's uh, somebody came with a great idea because to jump on the, on the yoga wagon who was very popular already, so they said, we're going to say this, and then we go along with them. But no, yoga and Ayurveda are the same thing, actually. And maybe we'll discuss things today about that. But it will belong to the same thing. So they're like two limbs in the same body. So that's my problem <coughs> with the two of them, of course. Thank you. Okay, so throughout the night, I'm either going to direct a question to all of you, for all of you to answer, or I'll specifically ask some of you guys questions, or I'll just throw it up and anybody can just kind of grab it. Yeah? Okay. Cool. So we'll start with, this is for each of you to answer. Um, have you found yoga to work? How does it or doesn't it work? The kind of general. So. What was the question? Have you? Have you found yoga to work? How does it or doesn't it work? You want to take it away? Uh, or you can, okay, you can go first. <laughs> Um, well, first of all, let me back up. And I was thinking about something when you guys were speaking. Mm -hmm. So I have my background, like I said, in, in philosophy and in neuroscience. And so in philosophy, my specialization is science, actually. So philosophy of science, how does science work? So I, I'll probably be coming at um, this from this perspective from a very, very rigorous scientific and even mathematical uh, statistical view. So a lot of times, like, you know, uh, in my syllabus for my class, I actually have a quote from Nietzsche. If you, anybody heard of Frederick Nietzsche, he says, would I consider a philosopher a terrible explosive in the presence of which everything is in danger? So philosophy is very, in neuroscience, science itself can be very subversive and people can react. So um, having said that, um, I, and this relates to the question as well, 
I, I think it's very good that you're at, you're asking this question. Is yoga good for me? I think that's very. It's brave. It's you're putting yourself out there, and you're questioning assumptions, right? And I think that's a very good thing. In fact, um, which is why I brought this book. Uh, I highly recommend it. I'm going to probably be reading from some passages from it. It's called The Science of Yoga, by William J. Broad. It, the risks and the rewards. So, coming from a very scientific perspective, um, that that is. I think that's a good thing. It's, it's a necessary thing to expand knowledge. So when you ask the question, um, how does it work, I think we're just finding that out right now um, from a scientific perspective, from a physiological perspective, from a neuroscientific perspective, from a psychological or neuropsychological perspective. I think we're actually just learning about that now. And it's not, we can't make the assumption that it has worked because we know about things like the placebo effect and bias, cognitive biases and things like that. So. Uh, it's a good. It's a good point to start. So, uh, I don't want to say like I don't know how yoga works, but you know we're learning about it at the level of the brain at least. Thank that's, you. that's my start. That's my start. That's my opening. It's <laughs> <laughs> like good morning. People are like. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right. Does anyone want to take the next one? Or you want to go to? So what? You want to answer? Yeah. Oh. Go for it. Does it, well, how does it work or does it work? Have you found it to work? Have you found it to work? And how does it? Or if your answer no, it doesn't work, then how does it not, how, why doesn't it not work? Okay. Well, let me see if I can cover that subject. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I've, I've been doing it for more than 20 years, right? So you can probably imagine that I'm slightly biased. Um, and I have absolutely found that it works. Um, when I came to yoga, uh, I had I was a, a dancer at the time. I was a young dancer, and I had this like really uh, horrendous accident where I broke most bones in my body <clears throat> from a big fall in the mountains. And um, two years after uh, going through rehabilitation, I uh, was ready to go back and dance again. So I was doing that, and I was backstage, and I was great. But I had so many issues everywhere. I was really like very difficult to make my body work the way I wanted it to work. And at some moment during this uh, post-rehabilitation, um, a friend of mine took me to a yoga class. And uh, we were doing downwards facing dog, amongst others. Maybe you know that. And um, in downwards facing dog, there was <clears throat> something going on in my legs, in my knees, which I had broken severely, um, that I hadn't experienced in all the physical therapy that I've been doing in all the low-impact, uh, water-based um, rehabilitation I've done, in all the physical therapy I've done, in the, uh, in the Tai Chi I had been doing, all this kind of stuff. I did not find that. And I could just feel that my, especially my knees, was a very uh, strong sensation of just almost like sucking in energy or health or something like that. And I'm sure it was not only that positioning of the knees, because that's a static position of the knees, but how we move in and out of these, uh, these uh, asanas. So I thought, wow, this is working, and this is working specifically for my ailments. So <clears throat> I need more of this. And as you can see, I did more of that. And over the years, I feel that my physical body has, um, like, <clears throat> I should say that the doctors at that time, science, told me that I would not dance again. They also told me that I would not uh, run again, and they wanted to give me some special kind of orthopedic shoes and that kind of sexy stuff, you know, that I was super interested in, you know, 25. So, um, but, um, and now I'm 52, 
case it's just a reverse number. <laughs> and uh, I'm still not with orthopedic shoes, so that's pretty good, you know? That's one, one down. Um, so yeah, I, on a physical level, totally fine that it works. Um, and I can go into something more, but then I'm going to speak all night. Yeah, cool. I can just Do you think it works? Sure. So I'll speak um, from the mental health and sleep research about yoga. Um, and as Michael pretty much said, the research surrounding yoga is still emerging, um, but overall it is very supportive. Um, again, there's limitations to all kinds of studies, small sample sizes, um, etc. But we are even seeing like changes in gene expression. Um, associated with yoga um, and the study I, I worked on two studies in Miami and Boston and in teenagers um, in outpatient mental health treatment we did see significant improvements in um, depression anxiety and overall life satisfaction scores um, so that was really good news um, and we also in our in our work in Boston we saw significant improvements in sleep quality um, and the work in Boston was only a six-week yoga intervention as well. Um, and that study, we were doing in-person yoga classes and also promoting yoga, a relaxing yoga routine, um, as part of as part of to promote sleep health um, and sleep hygiene. And we did see improvements in sleep from that. So overall, research is emerging and supporting yoga. So I think that is really exciting. Um, I will say I think I've seen cases where it. Not necessarily doesn't work, but it might not be for everyone, too. Um, and I always tell my students, too, it can be very hard if something works for us. We want to push that in other people and say, this is mm-hmm. this worked for me, so this is how it's going to be. Um, and in our work in Boston, we did a lot of qualitative formative research to um, before we even began our study. So it was a yoga-naive population, and we interviewed um our target population and said, okay, what do you think of yoga? What are your perceptions of yoga? What would make you participate in yoga? What wouldn't you? And then we developed our program based on that. And we were very sensitive to um, various aspects. And we still had some people that came once and didn't leave. Um, So in that case, I don't think it was yoga didn't work, but it just wasn't for them at that time. I actually have one um, follow-up for Christy. And with your mental health counseling, have have you found that to be incorporated into yoga at all? Sure. Are you incorporated into the mental health counseling? Sure. So I've, I mean, I've spoken with people. I'm not um, in private practice anymore, but doing that, um, clients that have started yoga, they have um, reported benefits from it as mm-hmm. well. And even mindfulness, too, um, that's incorporated in, in yoga, in traditional yoga anyway, um, then it benefits from that. So, yeah, I'm a definite supporter of the benefits of yoga. Cool, thank you. Bob? I, I think to launch off of one of the points that Christy just made, mm-hmm. in terms of why yoga may not work for certain individuals, I think from my experience as a private practice um, provider, I, I see yoga fitting into people's lives at certain points in time. So um, in individuals who are looking for some kind of a sea change effect, either from movement or from uh, behavioral retraining, and they're looking at something quick and easy to either make them feel better um, or to maybe prepare them for the next step, 
I see yoga as being a, a really important option for people to have because it it brings together a lot of the mind-body aspects that as a physical therapist I'm trying to promote among my patients so that they're not just seeing what what yoga can do for their body, they can actually see all the other aspects, the spiritual, the mental, um, the community level aspects that can pervade with a practice in yoga. Um, so that's in general. Um, a more specific example actually the holy grail for physical therapy is really to find something that will help us prevent injuries. We're known for rehabilitation, which is once you've already been injured, but it'd be great if we could prevent it on the front end. And to that effect, we have different movement screens or different uh, tests that we perform to try to understand who's at risk for incurring an injury. So they've done studies, uh, especially with tactical athletes, that's military, police, and fire, um, because these are the professions that get a lot of um, wear and tear in their bodies. They put themselves in harm's, way, in harm's way all the time. So they really want to optimize their healthy movement patterns. So you have tests that will actually segment out who is at greater risk for an injury. And what they've done with those tests is they take that subgroup of people and they apply different modalities to them. So some will do uh, yoga training, others will do specific corrective exercise training, others will do just a standard strength and flexibility routine. And what they've found, surprisingly enough, is that yoga provides the most benefit to improve their test scores in the shortest amount of time. Now, there isn't a big body of research to support this, these are smaller <coughs> studies, but it, it is there and it does kind of beg the question, what is behind the fact that yoga has such an enduring impact when you're trying to improve somebody's durability? So um, in that respect, yes, yoga does work. It, it probably works more for people at certain times in their life and who are trying to accomplish certain things. I think in line what, with what you're saying, um, in Ayurveda, we see yoga as a, as a therapy. The therapeutic effects of, of yoga in the body, not only in the body, as we were saying, the integral body, in the, in the body, in the mind, in the, in the spirit, everywhere. If we go to the, to the sutras and we see the eight, the eight names of yoga, and we start seeing what implications their practice has on, on ourselves, it's um, absolutely amazing. From an Ayurvedic point of view, the asana practice has a fantastic use for the well functioning of your digestive system and your elimination system. That's, you know, I mean, in that sense, the, the only proof you need is to just practice it and then see how you feel, okay? When you come to, to another limb, which is pranayama, that fills you with energy, that works on your, um, on your breath work, on your respiratory system. People that suffer from asthma and they start doing yoga in a good way, because that's a different question that we'll probably tackle later. But if you start doing yoga the way it should be, um, allergies, asthma, all these things, they're going to improve big time. If you continue with the limbs and you go to Pratyahara, you see that we come with control 
of our senses. And that, what does it do to us? Just the nervous system gets more quiet, we can quiet down our mind, and then goes to on and on with concentration and meditation and all these things. <laughs> so evidently all the limbs have an impact on, on our body th uh, therapeutically. So in Ayurveda, we, it's not that we tell people, look, this is the eight limbs of yoga, just do it, you know, because that's more of a spiritual practice. But we use it when we need something out of it. And even in, in the old books, you have like uh, detoxification techniques that we don't do these days because they're kind of brutal. <laughs> but uh, they were there as well. So in, in that respect, yoga was meant to be, yes, a spiritual practice, but they understood that in order to follow any spiritual practice, you, need to, you needed to have a very uh, healthy body and a very healthy mind. So they took care of it first, and then with that, then you have the energy and the will and the determination to continue on your goals. So to me, it makes total sense. It's very, very complete, this system. Extremely complete. I don't say there are other systems that uh, don't do the same thing. But I think the formula that Patanjali or the sages put together is a very, very um, wholesome way of, of living. Are living in health. Thank you. Um, so, Michael, since you have, I think you have the most Western medical perspective, do you have any benefits from that perspective to add onto yoga? Yeah. Western, yeah. Yeah, to, to jump on what mm -hmm. Jesus was saying, I think. So, one thing, um, let me jump to my handout. Can I, can I use yours? Yeah, so one interesting thing, and, and by the way, William J. Broad in his book, he says, uh, he believes, uh, as a journalist, he's not a scientist, uh, that the, to jump on Christina's point too, that the, uh, the benefits definitely outweigh possible risks, even for people who don't want to do it. But one thing, so when you ask, does yoga work, or how does it work, you have to really define what does it mean to work, right? So you need an operational definition. Which means when you perform a scientific study, you need some sort of definition of what works mean, and then you could test mm -hmm. or not test that, right? And, um, you know, a lot of people say there's a lot of different programs out there, there's a lot of different types of movement out there, there's a lot of different um, pseudosciences out there, some things work, some things don't work, and we have to ask the question, when you, see, when you hear people say, well, it works for me, um, you have to really address what, what does that mean, right? And, and that's like the placebo effect. That's how we test against that. So one of the tests that um, he was, you, you, Jesus, you were mentioning about the digestive system and the detoxification, the calming. So um, have you guys heard of the vagus nerve? Yeah. Have, have you, how many people have not heard, of, not heard of the vagus nerve? Okay, so the vagus nerve is something that's connected to yoga research. And I put one study on here. So if you, if you type in Google... Um, Yoga and the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. um, so here's one benefit of yoga at the level of the brain, at the level of the central nervous system. So the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve, and it, it, it runs down on both sides. It comes from the bottom. I brought my little model brain here. It runs from the medulla oblongata all the way down, and it innervates all of the viscera, the heart, um, the, the, the enteric nervous system. So you have a 500 million neurons in your nervous system. It's called the enteric nervous system, and that's they send signals to the brain. So it's called the gut-brain axis. So we now know a lot of things can affect that, right? And so the vagus nerve so the vagus nerve is run by the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest, right? And the autonomic nervous system, 
the uh, sympathetic, which is the fight or flight, right? And so the vagus nerve, if you just type in Google and research a little bit about the vagus nerve, it's all about people are hacking the vagus nerve. And yoga is one of the ways to hack, hack the vagus nerve. There's all this research now on the vagus nerve. And so people with higher vagal tone, like muscle tone, there's something called vagal tone. And you can actually measure that. You can measure it indirectly. It's very difficult. But now there's all these algorithms. Like I have one on my phone called heart rate variability. And it measures your vagal tone. So people with, it's like athletes have higher vagal tone. And higher vagal tone is associated with less stress, better mood, better appetite, um, better sexual drive, better all of these things. And yoga has a big, big effect on sexual drive. There's a lot of research on that, by the way. <laughs> and so, it goes straight. Yeah, it goes straight. <laughs> <laughs> so and people with lower vagal tone actually have higher levels of stress, um, worse mood, blah, 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 all these, all these kinds of, all these different things. So um, if you look at my handout, I'll just show you one thing to, the vag, the, so the vagus nerve innervates the enteric nervous system. And so serotonin, which is a mood, mood uh, enhancing, neuro, or mood controlling neurotransmitter, 90 or 80% of the serotonin is actually created in the gut, not in your brain. It's in the gut, it's in the enteric nervous system of your gut, and then that sends signals to your brain. So the gut-brain axis is really, really important. And yoga has an effect on that. And so if you look at the, I, I, I numbered these as like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. It's two-sided. And so if you look at number seven, I put this study here just to give you a hint. So you go to Google and, and research this for yourself. But this study, um, and I did put the journal, but it's Yoga and Heart Rate Variability, a Comprehensive Review of the Literature. So you see there's already, already all these studies being done. And I highlighted just a little bit of that. You see it says in the abstract, the review study suggests that yoga can affect cardiac autonomic regulation with increased HRV. So people, like, so let me, let me explain this really briefly. Every time you take a breath in, like this, your heart rate very, so heart rate very, your heart rate is not, um, it's not constant. There's variability, like, right? Like minor, minor, tiny variations. Something called chaos theory. Your heart rate actually chaotic. And when you take a breath in, your heart rate variability increases, and when you exhale, your heart rate um, variability decreases. And so you can moderate your vagal tone, you can increase your vagal tone by doing things like breath. So we now know a lot about how breath affects the brain. Um, and so you can see here it says, and vagal dominance during yoga practices, regular yoga practitioners were also found to have increased vagal tone. This is what you want. At rest, compared to non-yoga practitioners, it is premature to draw any firm conclusions about yoga and heart rate variability. This is good they put this in there. As most studies were of poor quality with small sample sizes, as Christina mentioned. But there is some evidence that that's why yoga has this effect. And it's, it's difficult, also I'll say one more thing. It's difficult to disentangle whether it's the breathing aspect of yoga or it's the postural aspect of yoga that has these effects <clears> on the brain that they do or some combination of both. It's very, very hard to... Um, disentangle those, but, but studies are being done. So, research Vegas, Vegas nerve and vagal tone, that's all I'm saying. If I can say something about what you just said, yeah. um, I don't think you can just take the different components and study them like uh, science does sometimes, you know, yeah. because they don't work like that. Um, excellent, 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 excellent point. I yeah. remember years ago, we used a lot of, now turmeric is very popular, of course, and everybody's just copying down pills of turmeric. But, yes, um, yeah, yeah. Years ago, in 
they did their research and uh, they, they found out about turmeric and how the Indians were using it and started researching. They were like, oh, it's good for cancer and this and that. So they took the, the component in turmeric, which is curcumin, which is the main component that does all these things. They isolated it, they created the capsules, and they were just cutting them down and nothing was happening. So this guy said, what's, what's happening here? I mean, this is supposed to work and it's not uh, working. So I went back to India and said, how does it work for them? Because they cook with it. And actually I'm giving you yeah. a, a piece of advice on how to take turmeric. You have to cook turmeric. The synergistic effects. Plus, yeah. it's very hard to, to absorb, to assimilate. So the Indians were taking the benefits because they were cooking, doing the curries with ginger, with black pepper, with all these other uh, spices that were allowing the body to digest that uh, turmeric. So if you're sprinkling turmeric on your salad, it's good for nothing. You need to cook with it. You need to cook it with it. But if you go to whatever you go for your pills, your supplements, and you find now the turmeric pills, they will bring, you'll see that it's turmeric and black pepper. So they became, you know, they say, okay, let us put black pepper so it can be digested. But it's still, I say one thing, when people drink the juice of fruit juice, we're not very keen on, on fruit juices in Ayurveda. Why? I, I always tell people, if the one that created fruits wanted us to drink the juice, then you would go to a tree and just suck from the, from the branches, <laughs> some kind of liquid. But the whole thing has this synergistic effect that is necessary and I think yoga resembles nature in that in that sense so it would be difficult to just pinpoint which what that's what you know would that would that the fruit juice apply even if you're including the pulp it doesn't matter process it very fine and then you still get the fibers. That works. As long as you get the whole thing, that's okay. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. Just to circle back to the heart rate variability. In mm -hmm. in my profession, yeah, heart rate variability is one of those kind of all um, on vogue things that people try to monitor. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they try to monitor it for the purpose of establishing a person's state of recovery, especially from act, from exercise and in training. When you're trying to optimize your performance, either training for an event or improving your state of health in general, the heart rate variability is an important biomarker for understanding whether or not your body has legitimately recovered. Because you can have a lot of confirmation bias thinking like, oh, I feel fine today. Mm -hmm. But if you actually measure some of these biomarkers that are telling you, no, you really, your nervous system is not ready for training today, you need to pay attention to that because that's when you put yourself at most risk for physical injury. Um, it's not the only, but yeah. It's, it's not the it's only not thing. The only, but it's, it's, a, it's a lately, the thing is it's hard to measure. So these algorithms are now just coming out because these, you need yep. like some really complex data science and coding to get at that. About 10 years ago, you'd have to spend $30,000. Right. Now um, I have it on my phone. Like. And, yeah, and now you, <laughs> yeah, you get a heart rate monitor, you get an app on your phone. 
you know, it's not, you know, research grade, yeah. but um, it, will, it will help you at least start to pay attention to some of the things that might be important about overall health. And we talk so much about, you know, what we're supposed to be doing to be healthy, but there are some things that we should not be doing. And, um, and maybe taking some time off to allow the body to, to recover its natural state. The, one last question, if I can. Just because um, you started talking about uh, vagal tone and, and it, it brought up the idea of the sympathetic chain ganglia. Yeah. In, in my line of work, whenever I'm working on a person's thoracic cage, um, whether I'm doing a manipulation or a mobilization or I'm facilitating movement, I keep in mind the question what is happening to their to the nerves that line the spine on either side in the thoracic area and they call it the sympathetic chain ganglia. So my question to you is do you know if there's any connection with vagal tone and the sympathetic chain ganglia in that regard? No, I don't Okay. I don't, I don't think there is. Um, Alright, research I mean, project. Right now. <laughs> Side project. The, yeah. yeah, the uh, the vagus nerve um, connects to so many different things. So, if the sympathetic ganglion are, are coming from that part of the autonomic nervous system. I would probably say um, it, it's it's working against or working antagonistically to um, the ganglion. To regulate. Correct. Yeah, oh. because the sympathetic is really upregulating the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest, right? So, uh, yeah. And you can control that with breath. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I don't know. Cool. Anybody else? All right. So I kind of want to flip it. And you two alluded to you finding instances where yoga doesn't work. So to Chrissy, Bob, and Tim, if you've had any experiences, uh, have you experienced instances where yoga doesn't work? And if you have any specific examples, if you'd like to share those, whoever would like to go first. Sure. Um, I so in terms of like doing yoga at a community type of level, and in terms of research projects and getting yoga a yoga night population to try something they haven't done before, um, we have to consider trauma. And about one in four people has experienced trauma. So just in terms of making sure to have a trauma-informed yoga practice. Um, so what we would do, we would have flip chips where people could indicate <coughs> if they wanted to be touched or not, so to respect their space. Um, and we would also be very careful around language around closing one's eyes. So we would say, if you're comfortable, close your eyes or focus on something in front of you, just because, of course, traumatic experiences, it can be hard to close your eyes in a room full of strangers. Um, so with... I guess I'm saying why things work or maybe why things work. Um, so in cases like that, we even incorporating all of that, we still have had in our research people who have not come back. Um, and I remember I tried to find out, especially from one woman, she kind of walked out in the middle of class and I really wanted to find out why because that would be really important data. Um, but I couldn't find out why. But I do suspect, um, in our original research, we found that race and gender concordance were not important. So we did, and it was more like the yoga instructor, so not only experienced, but a warm, caring personality. Mm -hmm. um, and they also had a great quote about how, like, we want the instructor to be from where we're from, not Beacon Hill. You know, this is in Boston, so they didn't want someone from the fancy area of Beacon Hill. But 
I didn't know, so we had a male, um, a highly trained Iyengar yoga instructor, um, but he was a male, um, and so I don't know if that had something to do with it, but that's my, that's my hunch, you know, so, so in cases where it doesn't work, I think it could just be, like, sensitive to all those type of things, and yoga is an intimate activity, so I also think of, you know, personal trauma could play a role, too. Okay. But I don't have concrete data to back that up. <laughs> it's okay. Such a oh, researcher. Um, Bob or Tim, or anybody else, but I think they would have the most experience. Well, I've certainly seen um, yoga not work, no doubt about it. Um, I agree with Christine, I think, that or was Bob that said that it's not for everybody. You know, it's like <coughs> some people like a lot of salt on their food, you know, and some people like fruit juice. Right. And we are different in that way. And we have people, like I've had students that come in and they just don't like it from the beginning. I've had students that come in and think it's fun in the beginning, but then it's just not for them. And they can continue and so forth. So I think that's a very important point, no doubt about it. Um, I also think like when you have a yoga uh, practitioner and when the practice doesn't start to work, so we have this notion <clears throat> that's called the practice. And the practice is that methodology of, it could be asana, and it could, uh, it could be postures, you know, movement and postures, and it could be breathing and so forth. It's kind of this um, uh, combination and that's a mindset and so forth. And when you have people that come into this practice and they, they don't really get it, then we sometimes have a problem. And I would say one of the biggest problems that uh, that, uh, uh, that like <clears throat> the people that has the biggest problem with yoga is probably people that come with some impatience and some competitiveness. And competitiveness is a funny word because it is <clears throat> being um, pursued and supported in our society so 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 much. And <clears throat> if I can be honest, then the people that has the biggest problem in uh, in the yoga class, and most likely that I need to send to Bob, you know, for some <laughs> kind of assessment, is men in their 30s, and I've been one of those, no doubt about it. So, because we come in and we're used to just hit it pretty hard, and if that doesn't work, we just hit it harder. And if you try to put your knee into some kind of very precarious position, and it doesn't really want to go go there and you just hit it harder, then Bob is needed like that <laughs> afternoon. I mean, that, that's just no doubt about it. So when you have that mindset where there's some impatience, there's some competitiveness, and where there is some unwillingness to listen to subtle sensory feedback on what we do. So I go in and I, I, make, and I uh, approach this movement and while I do this movement, I have to try to figure out if it feels right or wrong. And if I'm not willing to listen to that and take whatever what that subjectively feels right and wrong to me, if I don't listen to that as I go along, then I'm going to have a problem very likely. Um, so there's something about going into the yoga to the yoga room and um, allowing ourselves to listen. So we can experience what's going on and then reflect on that. What is the next step? Do I go forward or do I stop right here and I look right underneath me or do I take a step back? 
and the implication that it has on our mind to not go forward but to go back when everybody else is going forward in the room. I think that can be a little bit, a little bit difficult. So, so, <clears throat> so therefore sometimes physical injury happen uh, in yoga. But that would be uh, one of the most common causes that I see. I think it's interesting that Tim brings out the the double-edged sword of yoga because on one side it's a mindfulness practice. On the other side, if you are not looking to be more mindful, you're going to break yourself on it. So it's the rock that we kind of break ourselves on. So um, I wholeheartedly agree that there has to be a certain preparation um, for the reasons why, and a clear understanding for the reasons why you want to embark on a yoga practice. As long as it's not, if it's something that you're looking to do for the long haul. If it's something that you're just trying to, you know, check it out and see how, how, it, how it fits into your life, that's one thing. But if you're really approaching it in a very thoughtful manner, then you really have to take inventory for the reasons behind why you do things. Um, there are, from a physical perspective, there are certain connective tissue disorders that do make the practice of yoga a little bit more problematic if you, again, don't abide by certain sensory cues. Um, so in general, folks that are hypermobile, they have a lot of flexibility, not just in their muscles, but also in their joints and their soft tissues, they will have to take the practice of yoga a lot more slowly. They may need a lot of modifications. They may need to um, even take more time off from yoga um, during brief periods. But uh, it doesn't exclude the benefit of yoga in those folks. It just means that they have to be a little bit more careful. Um, so looking for a specific example, that might be okay. uh, one what I would say. Cool. Yeah. Can I ask a question on that? Yeah. Um, would there be some um, sport practices that are antagonistic to yoga? I'm saying this because I used to play soccer. Yeah, yeah. And when you play soccer, you need your joints to be very compact and very strong. And actually, when you do a lot of yoga, like the lotus and all these things, it loses up the, the joints. And actually, another yoga practitioner than myself, it was just... We had to choose yep. because it was just running on the field and it was like we were wobbling. It was like I'm gonna break apart and then you get back to the to the shala and then you cannot do anything you were doing the day before. So it's complete yeah. frustration on both sides, you know. But is there a there? There's a good reason to to um, help explain that there are there are sports that are highly asymmetric. So if you think about a baseball pitcher, right? they're very selective in how they move in their pitching arm. So from the physical capacity of that arm versus the other side to the mental control of that arm, they're very different. If they're at a professional or high level of performance, you want to keep them asymmetric because if you try to make them more symmetric, either through a yoga practice or, th or through other types of training, you're going to ruin their career, or you're going to shortcut their career. They live by that asymmetry. Now, when they're done with the sport, then they can come back and maybe take on uh, a more symmetric, balanced practice. But you don't want to take that component of their skill away from them in that regard. Okay. 
Can I jump in here? <clears throat> so I, I try to work with professional dancers and uh, ball players and so forth. And I totally agree, especially the knees. Like what yes. we are doing in yoga, we are opening all the joints. But if you are a basketball player or a, f a soccer player, and I start to open your joints, you're going to be in trouble. You're gonna, then you're gonna lose your able, your ability to control that joint, and it will suffer. So, like, I have a, a, if I have someone like that that works on a professional level in a sport, I would say, don't do this, don't do that. You need your body tonight. You know, you need to go on stage tonight. Do not do that. Okay. For sure. And I want to come back to injury in a little bit later, but before I do. I kind of wanted to flip it over. We've talked a lot about the physical, physiological effects and risks of yoga. I just thought, can I interrupt you? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Let me just say one more thing about injury. Yeah, and he said, talks about it in this book. Like, there's some evidence, I guess, and I forget the reading of this book, but there's some evidence that, like, certain uh, postures, like plow or something like that, will can actually increase risk of stroke um, in some people. There's actually, you know, empirical evidence for this um, mm -hmm. because of the, the strain you're putting on the neck. Um, at, like, have you guys heard of, um, there's something called barbershop uh, syndrome or something like that? Like, you know, you, you go get your hair washed in the barbershop and you put your neck yeah, like yeah. this. There's certain stories. They're anecdotal evidence. Like, those stories are anecdotal evidence. They're not empirical. But there's some evidence that, like, there's this, there's this syndrome called barbershop syndrome where you, like, put your neck back and uh, it can increase risk of uh, aneurysms and stroke in, 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 the, in the brain. So I, there's certain postures that are probably better for some people, or, or that certain people shouldn't do if they're increased risk. So okay. um, that's hand waving, but okay. yeah. Um, okay, so you know I actually stay on top of injury. Okay, um, sorry. No, no, no. You, you, you <laughs> maybe organize my thoughts a little bit. Um, and this one's for Chrissy. So Chrissy, I read some of your research that fear of injury was a barrier to yoga and in your research findings <clears throat> with the underserved communities. <laughs> Um, do you want to talk more about that barrier and what you found? Sure. Thanks for reading that paper. Yeah, I know. Sure. In terms of, it all goes back to perceptions of yoga, and some people were very intimidated by it and thought yoga meant standing on your head, and there's no way I could stand on my head. I'm not doing yoga. So just challenging that perception and then working with that. Um, and when you're having doing yoga for a community-based population, kind of being very um, judicious about what level of yoga we're doing. So, of course, you want to start with a beginner's level of yoga. We didn't do plow pose, so that's good. Um, <laughs> um, there's no, no inversions, actually, at all either. Um, so, yeah, so pretty much just addressing that um, in order to attract people to yoga. Um, conversely, we also had some people say, oh, it's not an exercise enough. If I'm going to spend an hour doing something, I need some physical benefits. Mm -hmm. You just sit there for yoga, too. So we heard both kind of perceptions, which was interesting. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then one more question for Tim on injury. Do you think this is something that's inevitable? Do you think something, something injury is something everybody needs to go through, or do you think it's avoidable? Yeah, you just got to break, and then after that... It's part of the practice. No pain, no gain. No, I don't think necessarily that that's the case, that you need to injure yourself. Um, I think if you do yoga on a quite simple level where you're not trying to become very advanced in yoga, then I think you don't know, you, you will probably likely not go up with an injury. Now, if you, on the other hand, 
want to try to push your limits, your physical limits, and um, uh, get beyond your comfort zone, um, work on your stamina, get stronger, get more flexible, uh, do crazy stuff, you know, or do like kind of complex advanced postures, <clears throat> then you're taking yourself closer to the risk line. And then you have to figure out with yourself if you're willing to cross that risk line. Um, you know, we need to figure that out also if we play soccer, right? If we start to uh, play soccer on a professional, on a semi-professional, or we just go out for competition with our buddies on Sunday and play with the other neighborhood, we have to figure out, are we willing to go into that tackle to win one for the team at all times? So I think that we have to keep in check. You know? And if you, if you want to surpass physical, mental, psychological, emotional um, uh, borders, then you don't know where you end up. Then there is risk in not out Okay. Thank you. Um, and okay, so now I kind of want to change gears a little bit. We've talked a lot about the physical aspects, um, but I want to bring up the mental, emotional, and spiritual benefits, or also kind of things to caution from from that perspective. So I think maybe Jesus or Tim, since you you you, you practice like more of an Eastern uh, philosophy, what are in your opinion what are the benefits of yoga from a spiritual? Mental perspective, emotional perspective, not physical. Well, uh, yoga was designed to be a spiritual practice, right? That's that's the main goal of yoga. Then we can take aspects of it and use them therapeutically or or physically or as we wish. But the practice is just about spirit, and I think. The, the beautiful thing about yoga is that um, it takes us on a journey. Um, there, is, there is a common error that happens in meditation classes. Uh, somebody is very stressed out, right? And they, they say, oh, you should meditate. Okay. So I go to a meditation class. Most of these people go crazy that day. Why? Because when your mind is so agitated, it is absolutely impossible that you can meditate. So first of all, you don't even know what they're talking about because you're not, I mean meditation happens at a very subtle level. So first of all, if you don't know anything about this or you're not you know, connected to that thing, you're going to get very frustrated. So if somebody comes for meditation and says, I didn't need this, I'm so, you know, worked up, wrapped up, whatever, yoga gives you the, 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 the exact recipe of how to do it. And again, we come back to the limbs. How do you start it? Yamas and niyamas, what is that? The thing that we can all connect to. This is how we live. So how I live a good life with myself and then with the society. I can do that. I can relate to that. So by doing that, I become a nicer guy. So people are going to react nicer to me too. So I start calming down a little bit. And then what's the next thing? It's asana. Why? Because it's our body. I can connect to my body. 
And then we take this journey little by little until we get to that meditation. That's what I want to get to, you know. So to me, the practice, the, the, the philosophy, the, the science is absolutely remarkable. Um, mentally, there was another aspect that we were talking about. Mentally, as you progress in that uh, journey, then evidently, it's not that your mind is coming down, it's that you are destroying ignorance, the ignorance that you had about the world, about what you have to do, about all these misconceptions that we have, and that brings more peacefulness to you too. So it's, and your body gets the benefits as well, and it will live longer and you will be happier with it because it won't, it won't have any disease or any injury. So the, the, the practice is just unbelievable when you think about the aspects they have to think about. Thank you. Um, so, for anybody who would like to answer this question, um, it's often said, kind of touching upon these different approaches to yoga, it's often said that you can practice yoga for many different reasons. It can be a physical, for physical benefit, or for a spiritual benefit. Um, so, do you observe a difference between these, ty these two types of practitioners in the way they practice or in, in the results that they get? What do you say? What do I, that question one more time? So it's often said you can practice yoga for different reasons, for physical versus spiritual, as a spiritual practice. Do you observe a difference between these two types of practitioners, like in either the way they approach the practice or in the quality of benefits they receive from the practice? I suppose it's got to be me that answers that, right? Sure. Mm. I'll take it after you. Know, uh, you no, no, you, you want to first? Yep. You first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, like we divide uh, practitioners into more physical-oriented uh, practitioners and more spiritual-oriented uh, practitioners. But I think ooh, we got to like define a little bit what is spirituality, yeah. <laughs> like what is spirit, what the heck does that mean? <coughs> and if I can uh, lay up against what... Um, Jesus was just talking about. So we have this uh, yoga darshana, which darshana uh, dark comes from the word dri, from the root dri, which means to see. So yoga darshana means uh, the yoga view of life. So it's a it's a particular defined uh, philosophy, and <clears throat> um, that uh, philosophy is pretty much the authority on that philosophy is Patanjali, who uh, uh, Jesus talked about a little bit before. He wrote a book called the Yoga Sutras. And kind of the dual, the key uh, in that book is the eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga. Ashtanga means eight, Anga means limb, Ashtanga means eight limb yoga. And it's very close to the eightfold path from Buddhism, if anyone is familiar with, with that. It's pretty much the same, it's a little bit categorized, a little bit different, but it's the same idea. Um, so let's see, uh, where am I going with this? <clears throat> so, as Jesus says, we like from these eight limbs we have eight pillars. And when we are practicing these eight pillars, that means we are doing yoga. And if we're doing, we're practicing one of these pillars, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing yoga. That means that we're approaching yoga from, maybe, potentially, or we're, we're pr approaching yoga from just one that one pillar. Or we're just practicing that one pillar, and we've kind of taken it out of context, and we work on that. That happens in the West a lot. We take asana, we take it out, and we, we have made it this kind of like exotic fitness system. You know, that gets us, gets us a flat tummy and a bit of digestion and makes us meet new friends and so forth. And that is, that's not a problem. And in 
many regards that can be benefits, like we can get healthy and so forth, if we just make sure that we, you know, as we talked about a little bit before, that we are willing to listen up to what's going on in that class. Now, <clears throat> so we have that kind of practitioner that comes in, that just wants to, you know, feel good in their body, feel good in their mind, feel good, um, have it like, basically have a little lift of their spirit, so to speak. So when we have that, that uh, practitioner that comes in, either for health or for beauty, for vanity, like both of those practitioners we call physical practitioners. Their approach is to um, get into an activity that can help them with their material self get healthier. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, super, super good. Now, what yoga intends a little bit more. Yoga has this idea that there is more than the physical body, that we also have an intellectual body that goes towards what we call a wisdom body. And then we also have a body after that, which is more a spirit body or a soul or something of that capacity, depending on how you define that. So, for that practitioner that's interested in that, that's when we pull back to what um, Jesus was talking about in the Eight Limbs, that the first two pillars is called the Yamas and the, the Niyamas. And the first uh, pillar there is the Yamas, and there's five things to it. And what, what these five things are, they are kind of suggestions, rules, observances towards how to live with other people live in society, live one-on-one -on -one with other people. So they have a social component. And they are things like um, try not to be hurtful, or as the Buddhists say, live with loving kindness. And there must be some honesty, we cannot steal from each other, there must be, there must be a general ethical, moral, sexual relationship between us, and some more stuff like that. So that's the first one, that's what, how we interact uh, between us. Then after that comes uh, some observances, some rules that, that we are suggested to live by with ourselves. It has to do with, <clears throat> the first one for instance is called Saucha, which can be uh, translated either to cleanliness or to purity. And <clears throat> it, uh, we work with it both from you must, if you show up in your class, you must wash before you come. Your gear must be clean, don't come with old sweaty stuff from yesterday. It is not nice for you or for nobody. So, uh, so that's one. At the same time, we also say there must be purity in action. We have to do kind, pure actions. There must be purity of thought. We must have kind, pure thoughts. There must be purity of speech. We must speak kindly and um, in that way, pure to each other. And so forth. So we have these... Um, kind of the Ten Commandments of Yoga. <clears throat> and so that's why we can maybe go and we can say, is that spirituality? If I don't, do not lie to Michael, is that spiritual? If I don't kill him, is that spiritual? <laughs> if I treat him really nice, from, a, from truly wanting to treat him nice, is that spiritual? What is spiritual? Does there need to be a Godhead? Or can general kindness and goodness between us and honesty and so forth, can that be spiritual? And I think we have to define that for ourselves. If spiritual means there's a God and there's no Godhead. Something like that.
Cool, thank you. And I have one more question for you. Does that affect you as a teacher? Whether the, the student comes in for a physical reason or if they come in for a, a spiritual approach? Uh, uh, yeah. That's an honest question. That's an honest question. I want to hear your. I'm very excited to hear your. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of my students here, so I better be careful now. Okay. Um, so, uh, yes, if someone is very interested in the physical, I'm happy to go there. And I will go all the way and I'll push him harder. And, um, and it's fun enough. It's a fun place, it's a pleasurable place to be. The body, you know what I mean? It has sensory pleasure in there. So there, now, what I find happen is if the student stays on, and that certainly happened for me. I did not come into yoga because I wanted to find God. I came into yoga because I wanted to find my knees. I wanted to get my knees healthy. So I'm certainly that person that came in for physical reasons in that, and I probably want to make my stomach a little bit flatter off sometimes. <laughs> but let's not talk anymore about that. But, um, and through that practice, there's something else that started to open up that I couldn't really put my hand on, but that felt of a spiritual kind, like mysterious, you know, something like that. And when I, I find that with most practitioners when they practice long enough, there's, there's something that rises between the bricks between the the matter, you know, between getting a flat stomach and getting a healthier knee. There's something in between which I don't really know what to call. Maybe you know Thanks. you've been studying it in oh, there. So. I know. <laughs> so you said you wanted to add something before we start. Oh yeah, I, I do yoga just a little bit. Yes, so I just want to do the hand balance. It's working, man. It's working now. <laughs> Actually, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but that's interesting. Uh, so, here's a question that I posed mm -hmm. to you and the, the panel and to the audience as well. Mm -hmm. Can you, um, yoga has been westernized mm -hmm. in a certain sense, and I, I can define what I mean by that, right? Mm -hmm. But can you, can you practice yoga and can you get all of these benefits that I put on this sheet, what yoga does for the brain, can you get all those benefits without any of the philosophical and or spiritual mm -hmm. um, uh, Components. Mm -hmm. Do you think you can? You ask me. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I, I have my answer, but and yes. I'll explain why. But what do you? So can't like then this honest. Can you get any all of the benefits that you can get with yoga that we've been talking about? Right, the brain, physiological, psychological, physical. Can you get all of those benefits if you are completely anti? Not even if you don't agree with, but if you're anti all of the philosophical and uh, the, 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 the philosophy and the sutras and the spiritual components. I think so. Why? Um, so, if you will allow me to speak I'm from... Pressing, I'm pressing, yeah, I'm pressing. No, 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 okay. um, so I, and what does I'll, that mean? I will answer it from the yogic perspective. Okay. All right? So, um, so, yoga philosophy talks about that. They say there's two paths. They say there is the path um, of surrender, and there's the path of effort. And you can choose which one you want. So the path of surrender is uh, what we also call, usually we call bhakti yogi, yoga. And bhakti yogi is the devotional yoga. And it, there's, a, there's a, the 
it's a, from the heart, like it's, it's heart-centered, and it has to do with divinity, and it has to do with experiencing God in yourself, and God within you, and <coughs> so forth, and, and you within God, and so forth. So that is one, one path, and the other path is the path of effort, and that's for the rest of us fuckers that can't believe, that can't find trust and faith in ourselves, that was a little bit of a joke, sorry, I apologize. <laughs> but, so, we have, according to yoga, we have to go the hard way. We have to learn everything by ourselves. Because no faith is there. No trust is there. Yeah? No Godhead is there where we say, well, I give it up to God. Instead we say, if it's not happening, that's something I must be doing about it. So, when we take the path of effort, then we can get to the same goal. But as the words uh, suggest here, the path of effort is more effortful. So, uh, from a yoga perspective, oh yes, totally possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I think that like all of these studies that have been done, uh, they, the, the, the cohorts that people in the studies come from all different kinds of backgrounds and maybe religious traditions and things like that, but they're somehow reaping the benefits versus non-yoga practitioners. Right. And so there's something going on physically, right, at the level of matter. Yeah. And that's all I want to, that's, that, and that's the only thing I can speak about, right, because uh, you know, that there's something going on that can be tested. There's something going on at the level of cells, mm -hmm. right, and the level of DNA even, and the level of uh, neurons in the brain that allows for uh, these benefits, this practice. I mean, you could probably circumvent and get all of these other benefits by doing these other practices, other types of movements, and uh, other types of breathing techniques, and so on and so forth, right? But it, it's just interesting to me that, um, like, when, like, let me read this passage, when yoga's been westernized. It says, billions of dollars are now at stake in public representations of what yoga can do. And the temptations are plentiful to lace declarations with everything from self-deception and happy imprecision to willful misrepresentations and shadings of the truth. And he says, anyone who does yoga for a while can rattle off a list of benefits. It calms and relaxes, eases and renews, energizes and strengthens. It somehow makes us feel better. But beyond such, this is the, this is, this is the punchline right here. But beyond such basics lies a frothy hodgepodge of public claims and assurances, sales pitches, and new age promises. The topics include some of life's most central aspirations, health, attractiveness, fitness, and he says, um, it, it, it casts light on yoga's hidden workings as well as the disconcerting reality of false claims and dangerous omissions. At heart, it illuminates the risks and rewards. So it's just like very interesting to me that, um, th that those things can be disentangled. Mm -hmm. It's like Tai Chi and the notion of, uh, like you have prana, you have the notion of chi or ki or something like this. Mm -hmm. um, you have these different notions and people practice Tai Chi. So it's been westernized too. Mm -hmm. Uh, that you reap all these benefits, like uh, I can give you all kinds of experiments that have been done on expert Tai Chi practitioners, but um, but it's just you can disentangle those things. Like when it was Westernized, all of that philosophy was not brought over, and some of it was, and some of it gets misinterpreted. Just like there's ten thousand different denominations of Christianity alone because of the the interpretation. So I think the same. It's just I think so. I I know. Long story short, I agree with you. Yeah. Cool. I was just thinking one more thing, like, if I can just add. So, all we say with that Godhead, or that, what Yoga says with that Godhead is, it is practical. If you want to bring it in, bring it in. 
it makes it a little bit more how powerful you don't need it but if you can if you can include it good for you you're gonna reap some benefits it's gonna be eternal okay. <laughs> thanks. All right. cool thanks anybody have anything to add to that I'm gonna switch gears a little bit yeah. I was just wondering maybe is there a sociological structure that needs to be in place for a person to reap some of these benefits because I can I can approach yoga from a very just a purely physical standpoint and then get turned on by a good teacher who knows how to direct me to uh, through the eight limbs but if that may not resonate with me if I'm going back to a lifestyle that really doesn't honor that type of living, and I'm yeah. just thinking about it from a physical standpoint. So just in my head, just wonder, is there a subgroup of people that would be more, um, that would benefit more from the holistic approach that the eight limbs offers versus a subgroup that really just already has their own social structure in place, but needs a catalyst like yoga to kind of get things moving in the right direction? Just a question. I can better brief on that. Like I can tell you that um, we consider in, in the yoga philosophy that Sangha, the idea of community, is a fourth of the necessary ingredients that needs to be in the curry for the turmeric to work. <laughs> yeah. So that that must be there. So there's the students' effort, the teachers' effort, the community support, and time. So absolutely. And I feel like I feel that I come down here, I hang out with a couple of people. I hear Monica talk about the practice. It was good today. It was bad today. But it like there's a support system in that that brings the turmeric out. You have great tea too. Oh, great. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope it's that it's readily acceptable. Okay. So, I, I think, so Bob, a question for you. What do you think is, what would you recommend as an entry into yoga that creates the best results? So, Tim, as mentioned, these four, these four ingredients, but from your perspective, what do you think is necessary to enter into this practice? in order to harness all the potential benefits of yoga? All of them. All of them. One thought. <laughs> all of them. Uh, well, wow, all of them. Um, from, from my experience and my perspective, I think if a person is looking to somehow rebalance their perspective on um, either their life in general or certain aspects of their life, they can use movement as a way to help entrain the brain, right? Entrain the brain to um, adapt to the stress, the physical stress of yoga in a positive way. Um, so if you think about why, why does your body change on any level from doing a practice of yoga, it's because you're stressing it and then you're adapting to the stress. Whatever the process is, whether it's um, in your heart or in your brain, your nervous system, your muscles, there's always that adaptation to a new stimulus. So 
if you're looking to approach yoga from the perspective of introducing something new, um, something novel that can kind of shake things up in different areas, then I think yoga, from even just the physical standpoint, can do that. Because then you take the physiologic benefits back to your family, like I think you were referring to, and, and from your family, it extends out to your community. Um, <clears throat> this may be actually a way to kind of segue into uh, what's going on with the chronic pain dilemma on a social scale. So there is obviously chronic pain crisis going on. And from the physical therapy standpoint, we're trying to promote ourselves as part of the agents of change to help with um, people from becoming chronic pain patients or persistent pain sufferers um, through mindfulness practices like yoga or Pilates or you know even just regular movement throughout your day. Um, so I think if a person is really going to reap some benefit from yoga, you're going you're going to want to start with a sense of um, needing mindfulness in your life, needing some kind of uh, facilitation or a change in your in your routine, um, and then also maybe having the right teacher, because I think a lot of the aspects that we're talking about can be missed if the teacher is not the right one for you. Because um, I could certainly walk into any other yoga studio and do yoga and not really care about the other limbs, but if somebody like Tim were to actually just talk to me about, well, you know, how, how the structure and the history of yoga um, really formed it to be what it is, that may, for me, may intellectually cause me to look further into that. So I think the teacher, as much as the student, plays a big role, as you're saying. Which is, is part of your research. And that was one of the things you made sure that you had a warm and friendly teacher and could kind of um, read their audience, if you will, mm -hmm. to, um, to give certain messaging in the class could be really important, I think, to, to draw them in, if maybe for just the physical practitioners to maybe draw them in and keep them coming back for the spiritual practice, like you were saying. Um, Bob mentioned um, yoga for chronic pain, and which is a huge topic um, with opioid problem. Um, but to me, and I love everyone's thoughts, to um, a mental benefit, a mental health benefit of yoga is it can teach us to ride the wave, if you will. Um, it's not to stay relaxed all the time, but just to keep up, to endure pain and sit with it as it is um, while remaining centered. So it's great. I had a study and on I that. Think <laughs> there's a study, yeah, there's a study on pain tolerance. Okay, perfect. That's a good segue. So um, <laughs> perhaps okay. that perhaps four. that can help. Yeah, and it's number four on your sheet. Apparently, <laughs> oh, you're right. That's awesome. And it helps the insular cortex. That, no, I don't even. I'm just yeah. off here. No, I didn't That's want to throw right. you off. I just got excited when you when you said that. Like, I was going with your thoughts. Sorry. So yeah, no, that was that was pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. No. The the, the uh, can I jump on that? Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, like the uh, let's see. Number three. Oh, look at this. It might say number three and four. So yeah, insular cortex mediates increased pain tolerance in yoga practitioners. So the insula. <coughs> pull my brain up. <clears throat> 
like the, this, this particle is the temporal lobe here, and the insula is actually deep inside. It's right, it's inside the brain. And the insula is my favorite part of the brain. It, it deals with interoception and body awareness and um, all kinds of things like empathy and compassion are largely, uh, when you, when you cha make changes to the insula, you make changes to the parts, parts of personality, like empathy and compassion. So they, yeah, I put these little graphs here. So you could see that like, number four, during yoga practice years, duration of yoga practice, and the gray matter. So the, um, it actually increased, like so the, the gray matter is the cell bodies of the neurons. So like a neuron has an arm, like an axon. It's like, a, like literally an electric signal travels down like the, in, the, in the walls right there. And so this, the, the gray matter is the body of the neuron. And so yoga has been shown to increase that gray matter in certain areas like the hippocampus, which is involved in working memory and emotion and uh, insula and decreased gray matter in the amygdala, for example, which is involved in like fear and anxiety. And so you can see there's like a strong correlation between the gray matter volume in the insula and years of yoga practice. And cold paid tolerance, and it's, it's just really cool. Like, um, the gr so when you have more gray matter volume in the insula, you, you have greater pain tolerance to cold. And like there was another one too. Yeah, but so there's, there's, there's actually some, some pretty cool evidence at the level of the brain of why yoga increases pain tolerance and allows you to, as Christina, I think, rightly said, ride the wave. Pretty cool stuff. Um, I want to come back for, for Jesus, coming back to what you would recommend as an entry into yoga to have to create the best results, or, or into Ayurveda, because in the beginning you mentioned that yoga and Ayurveda, they're pretty much, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So looking at, at these practices as, as one, how would you recommend someone who's a beginner, who's never had any experience with either of those things, how to enter into these practices for the best results? There's one word to answer this question, it's flowing. It's just flowing, no expectations. You just flow with what comes and then that's, that's a recipe that always works. Uh, if you just let yourself go, it will happen. If you just put yourself, your expectations, what you, how you see it, if you have any goals, then you're doomed. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> and you just change it. You come and change the practice or whatever because you think it's better. Yeah, I tell people, you know, you have to do this this way. They come back and it doesn't work. Why? I did it this way, but I didn't tell you that. Well, that's how I felt it, you know, so... That's, that's one thing that... There's another thing in Ayurveda which is very, to me, very important and very unique to Ayurveda and it's the, the theory of, of... It's called the theory of the three doshas, the three constitutions. How Ayurveda says that when we are born or actually conceived, um, the five elements... Um, they, they get together in a way that they form like three different uh, constitutions. So based on what your constitution is, everything in life revolves around that. So evidently for me, whether you're coming to Ayurveda, to yoga, to soccer, to whatever, to becoming an engineer, it doesn't matter. Anything you do, it has to do with your constitution. Uh, I get this question, uh, is, this, is this good? Are salads good? The question is, are salads good for me? 
because for some people, depending on your constitution, that salad might, might be the best food, and for other people, it might not be a good option. So based on that, you would go and choose what yoga you want to do, for example, as well. You know, what kind of yoga are you, you know. Um, hot yoga is something that we created here. And for some people, actually, it's really detrimental. According to Ayurveda, for, there is one constitution, which is fire. Evidently, if you put a fire in this, you know, 100-and-something degree room, it's not going to be very nice because it's adding fire to fire. So there are going to be problems health-wise. So, but there is another constitution which is very cold and maybe getting in there is going to create balance, going to be really good for them. So this is, a, to me, this is everything, everything. Once you know that, then you can know what to eat, how to exercise, where to live, and where to work. And no, that, the, your, your partner doesn't fit in here, okay? So now that if I am cold, I find somebody who is hot, and then we, we create a good balance. It doesn't work like that. But for everything else, I mean, that aspect, that theory, I think it's fundamental. Thank you. So before I ask you guys the final question, do you have anything to add? No? Okay. So... One more question. It's for all of you. Um, what is the future of yoga? So moving forward, how would you like to see this practice evolve? This, this is for all of us. Yeah. So you want to just start this is, Yeah. Um, I think we need to figure out what our purpose is in this place, this weird place where we land. So in order to find out what our purpose is, I would love yoga to go into a more, you know, to complete the, the stairway all the way up to heaven, to samadhi, and to just work on the way up so we, we become more mindful and, and we can do whatever we're supposed to be doing here, at least figure it out. So that would be, to me, a, a nice patch. Stairway to heaven? How would like yoga to evolve? Um, you know, maybe some like more rigorous practice so you can get lots of customers. Leave your cards in the lobby. That's what I was going to answer. That's my answer. I actually would like to put myself out of business. <laughs> I could just do photography. Um, you know, I, I think. How yoga is, I don't know that yoga itself needs to evolve. I think our approach to practices like yoga that bring into this, the sphere of influence this, this internal and external relationship, I think those practices are really something that we as a society need to um, embrace 
uh, rediscover, um, promote. Uh, you know, the things that I see going wrong with the physical body, oftentimes, yes, there can be a, a state of tissue damage, but oftentimes it's less about the tissue and it's more about everything else. So a person's sleep, their nutrition, their uh, ability to cope with stress, um, you know, all of these major foundations of optimal human health, they can be, you can find something within yoga to already, you know, latch onto. So I think we just need to evolve as a society to appreciate that there, there are constructs like yoga that really can benefit us all on, you know, like a, on a population level. Um, but we have to just start. We just have to do it. Do something different. Um, because I think if we keep doing the same thing, we're just going to get the same results. I agree with you. Um, I would love to see accessibility to yoga um, improve. Ideally, there'll be mental health, free mental health drop-in centers everywhere, and everyone can practice yoga too. That's on my my vision board. Um, but to me, I think yoga could be very beneficial. Even highly westernized yoga, because you're getting the, you're moving, you're breathing, um, deep breathing, long exhales, and there's meditative components. So I think it's it could be a very therapeutic intervention. Um, Ideally, it could be practiced anywhere. It could be low cost. If you live in a poor neighborhood, you could stay inside and do yoga. You don't have to have a walkable neighborhood. You could do yoga in a jail cell. Um, and there are all these programs promoting that. So I would, I would like to see that um, increase and in just the accessibility of it mm -hmm. as well. So that's what I hope. Yeah. Me too. Okay. Um, well, what is the? This is the question. Is what? What's the future of yoga? Yeah, and, you, yeah, and how, how would I see it at all? Um, well, to a certain extent, there's actually um, empirical data to answer this question. I mean, I, I think I read um, last month that, you know, of course, yoga is a billion-dollar industry, but it's projected. You can look up statistics, right? You can look up data on this. It's yoga's projected to increase billions of dollars more by 2025. So there's a lot of money to be made in yoga in this country um, that's projected. That That's like statistical figures based on linear models. So that, that's really interesting. So that, that right there, if that holds true, which it's based on all this other previous evidence from this past 25 years, um, it's going to become more popular and more people are going to practice, more yoga studios are going to go up, more, more uh, you know, the industry is growing. So that's, that's almost a, a guaranteed certainty. And, so yeah, I wanted to say that. And there's a lot of things that we don't know about how movement and what I study, movement and cognition, movement and cognitive processes like perception, how movement changes perception, how movement changes working memory, how movement changes um, uh, emotional regulation, how well you're able to regulate your emotions and understand like facial expressions and emotions of other people. So there's a lot of research going on right now. And I think that's from my perspective, it's a very it's a good thing. So uh, we're going to learn, um, and I just there's a great uh, yoga practitioner named Jules Mitchell who wrote a book. She did her master's thesis, uh, and it's called Yoga Biomechanics. So even like from a biomechanical perspective, like flexibility, we still don't know 
at like the level of, in a cellular level, what makes us flexible? I mean, the, the muscles uh, we we know now that the muscles are static; they don't stretch like you know, elastic bands, it's actually, you're probably training, flexibility is probably what we're learning now in the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, that you're training, um, you're training your, your central nervous system to tolerate greater and greater levels of pain. So flexibility seems to be a more a nervous system thing and much less a muscle thing. So there's also research on, on this stuff that, that is still up in the air. Um, and I just think it's, it's very, I, I think that the future of yoga is going to be the more scientific studies about the intersection of movement and cognition, why movement makes us more compassionate in certain, in certain uh, aspects. And from what Christina had to jump on for what you were saying is the, um, for pathologies like autism. Like now we're applying yoga to autistic uh, ASD, spectral uh, disorder and things like that. So I, I think there's a research to be done in that as well. So I'm very excited, actually, as a scientist and, and a practitioner. Uh, so I'm very surprised to hear that they, that the yoga is projected to increase. You know that we're gonna get more of that in the future. I thought we were pretty much at the peak. I'm kind of hmm. waiting for that moment <laughs> when my services are less uh, requested. You know, yeah. so. from the research I've done, it's the opposite. At least for another seven years. Could you like? I can give you. I will give you the timeless data. So, but um, um, if that's the case, I would hope that in the years to come, that uh, a little bit more mature idea about what yoga is, that that begins to prevail. That there is a little bit more realistic idea about what yoga is good for and what's not good for. You know, sometimes you need a psychiatrist or something. You know what I mean? And, um, Sun salutations are not enough. So <clears throat> I hope that, that that will happen. And I would very much like to see in the US and the West at least um, that there would, uh, that <clears throat> some educated body that was a little bit more serious than what we have at the moment would uh, take root, that that would happen. Uh, so we could have a higher skill of yoga teachers. Um, if you think about it at the time, <coughs> Any one of you can call yourself a yoga teacher, and I mean any one of you, and your parents, and your uncles, and your nieces, and your nephews, like that is a generic term, anyone can call themselves that. That's alright man, do you know what I mean, like well, something's gotta, gotta be, be done by that. So. Thank you. Um, so, Astrid. So she's going to walk around, so if any, any of you guys have questions, raise your hand. Matthew. Would you raise the, raise the right hand, please? <laughs> <laughs> so since we're, since we're recording for our podcast, if you, if you wouldn't mind, Ashley's going to bring over a recording device. We'll be on CNN tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew. So I guess my question may piggyback on what you were speaking about, Tim, because um, like when I saw the question tonight, is, is yoga good for me, right? Um, I know it's meant to be a provocative sort of question, and I think skepticism is important. But when I look at it, it almost immediately betrays a, a, a logical inconsistency that I think causes issues in yoga. 
Meaning, if you go to the source code of yoga, yoga chitta vritti narodaha, yoga is the stilling of the rotating states of the mind. Well, that's like saying, if that's not good for you, that's like saying, well, is happiness good for me? And is healthiness good for me? Of course that's good for you. But at the same time, that, 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 that idea of stilling the calming of the mind is then qualified by, the, by another word. Ashtanga Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Iyengar Yoga, but then it extends past that. Bhakti Yoga, Tantric Yoga, Karma Yoga, and then my way of understanding, I look at it as any sort of rhythmic, repetitive process that helps to still the mind, is yoga. So, uh, a Muslim doing Ramadan, a Jew doing Shabbat, a Catholic doing a Rosary. That's, if you look at that, if you look at all those practices, those are all the stilling of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so we interchangeably use this word asana and yoga, but I think right out of the gates it starts to confuse people. Mm -hmm. And that we think it's just asana. We think it's this dogmatic, rigorous, physical practice. Mm -hmm. And then we run up against that, and then it can cause injury, can cause disappointment, it can cause issues from there. Mm -hmm. When at the end of the day, if the fundamental principle is when the mind is calm, the asana is perfect. But when we walk into here, everyone immediately thinks, oh, when the asana is perfect, my mind is going to be calm. Mm -hmm. And so back to what you're saying there. I want to make it more accessible, but at the same time, I worry that the bastardization is going to cause damage. And that's when maybe it's not good for people. And, you know, for me, it's, the, it's bifurcated between... There are lots and lots and lots of yoga instructors, and then there's just a couple yoga teachers out there. Mm -hmm. Or the difference between saying, I go to yoga class versus I have a yoga practice. Mm -hmm. but I don't want to make this esoteric, but I also, I'm worried that it's going to erode and dilute that top end of where we can reach with it. So I don't know if, how you address that, but that's sort of my central question. Well, can I just ask, can I address that? Yeah, no, I, I think the reason why I said in the beginning, uh, I, I, I like what you're saying, um, and I, I kind of respect what you're saying. I do respect what you're saying. It's just I think that the, asking the question, like I said in the beginning, is yoga good for me, is a brave question, because I'll, in my, and that's why he says, the new age practices and new age promises and sales pitches, there's a lot of pseudoscience out there. Yeah. There's a lot of things that don't work. Here I have these crystals that will heal you, and okay, or, or whatever. Tumeric without pepper. Tumeric without pepper. <laughs> we need to be able to answer that question rigorously. Do these crystals have an effect? That's why we have control groups. That's why we have double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled studies. And so the question um, is, is not uh, obvious in the sense of, is happiness good for you or is healthiness good for you? Is, is firewalking uh, good for you is going into a hot cave or something or you know there's all kinds of things that there are, that are not right and and we have to address that question so in terms of distilling the mind it's still good to have like an answer like some evidence I can point to this and say yes distilling the mind in these practices is good for you because it has this effect from an operationalized definition so I, I think the question is, is a very good one to address um, in that sense but I and I wouldn't want to agree with what you're saying. And I wouldn't want to also run away from the quantum, um, 
the quantum deconstruction of it, because I think the, the more we learn about that, the more exciting it gets to me on a quantum level, what, what's, what's happening. So I, I don't want to run away from that. Right, right. I guess what I'm saying is that if, if, we're, if, if we have a more rigorous um, accrediting or more rigorous academic environment, then it probably solves a lot of these a lot of these issues. Depends on who is the deciding factor in that rigorous body there, right? But then, can I just mention one thing? So we have this word yoga, and like we've been using it today, but what the heck does it mean? You know, so mm -hmm. uh, Matthew is bringing up uh, a very technical definition where he says it's uh, to um, control the movements that's going on in the mind. And that's very technical, that's a Patanjali definition of it, but we can and we can use the word yoga like that. It's it's like the math. It's like Einstein's and his buddies like talking shop. But um, there's other definitions of yoga which is just what feels good, what is right, what is natural, what leads to um, general health and so forth. So we say it's kind of like an elastic, like a chewing gum word. You can kind of do with it what you want a little bit in, in that way. So so therefore it can mean. Go in and do yasana, go in and do these movements in a hot room, you know, whether you have the right constitution or not, and then it will still be called yoga. Any other questions? Um, you mentioned that there has been research in the ASD population, people uh, who have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Can you expand on that? And um, mostly, you, you guys talked a lot about benefits. Is there any other benefit in this population that has been researched or you have seen as anecdotal data? Um, in ASD population, You can probably answer that question better, better than I can. So, so I'm going to defer. Sure. I just mentioned it because I know that there are studies. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you. I am not aware of a preponderance of data specifically um, with ASD population. So I. Sorry about that. I cannot, yeah, off the top of my head. I could get back to you on that. <laughs> but we could also Google, if you Google Scholar, Google Scholar good, yeah. and you can figure that out. But yeah. Sorry. Um, I think you had a question, right? Dennis? Right behind you. Yes. So I want to thank you all so much. You bring such diverse perspectives, and it's really fascinating to hear. Uh, the way each of you approach it. Um, I come from a background mostly in, in meditation from a Buddhist standpoint, and yoga came later for me. And in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about three kind of um, pillars or three foundations that you need to have a whole complete practice, a spiritual path, shiva, samadhi, and prajna. So samadhi is the meditation aspect, prajna is the wisdom aspect that you cultivate, seeing reality clearly. But the first one that you really need to work on as a foundation for the other two to grow is shila, which is ethics, um, which corresponds to what Tim and Jesus were talking about so much with the, the limbs and the first two of those limbs as a progressive system being concerned with mostly with ethics, with getting your life in order both from a personal point of view and in terms of how you conduct yourself with others. And it's only on that basis that you can move forward with a successful yoga practice and move forward into the higher levels of yoga that have to do with calming the mind and, and 
attaining some kind of spiritual liberation. Mm -hmm. So I, I see so much um, in our society of people who either they never bother to learn about those aspects of the practice or they just can't be bothered with them and they just skip right over and go straight to the physical practice and that's all they're concerned with. And you see so many big lineages of yoga being built up around this and then they go down in flames. John Friend, um, Bikram. I, in the Buddhist world, I can't. I would have to have so many hands to count on my fingers the number of teachers yeah. whose sanghas have collapsed because the teachers themselves, not just the students, but the teachers, um, got embroiled in some kind of sexual scandal um, that brought the problem down. The, the, the lineage that I started in um, with my meditation practice is now going through that because the teacher has been exposed as having all kinds of um, inappropriate sexual conduct with students. So I, I just think it's so important, and I'm, I'm glad that you both brought that up. And I wonder if you have something more to say about the importance of ethics in the past. As... <laughs> As I said before, uh, you know, ethics, you look at it, all the religions, all the traditions start with ethics. There is a double edge on that, or a double purpose on that. One is to prepare the foundations for us to grow, as you were saying. The other one is to preserve society. Because if you look at the Yamas and the Yamas or the Ten Commandments or anything, they are preserving from us killing each other and stealing from each other and telling lies and whatnot. You see? It's just a way they knew whoever did this knew we were a little bit like beasts. So, like donkey lings or something. We're not, uh, we have that animal nature. And that's hard to control, very hard to control. So we need these rules. To, to survive. Once we go through that, and that's super important, if you don't go through that, I can tell you something that happened to a friend of mine, an Argentinian, many years ago, maybe 30 years ago. Argent uh, yoga had just started in Buenos Aires. So he goes, he reads about it, he's 19 year old. He gets excited, oh yoga, what is this? You know, a rebel, <laughs> of course, my friend. He goes to the yoga studio. And he gets there and the, somebody comes out and says, what do you want? And he says, I want to do yoga. I want to practice yoga. And the guy gave him a leaflet. And the leaflet was the, the yamas and the yamas. And he said, take this boy. When you learn them in a month and you practice them, and in a month or two you come back and they'll teach you yoga. So that was a way of telling him, first, this is so important that until you know yamas and yamas, you don't show up here, I'm not going to show you anything. So I, I love that story. It, it just answers your question. I think that teacher, well, I guess it was a very good teacher because he's so this, you know. And from then you can just grow to, to any other thing. If that, what happens to all these things we're seeing these days with all these teachers being exposed? Basically, you know, they're breaking the yamas and the yamas. They're breaking the commandments. They're breaking whatever, you know, the, 
the Buddhist uh, loves whatever. And then the whole thing comes to comes down like uh, you know the card thing, you know. But that's normal because if you take that out, the, the other stuff doesn't exist. So to me, it's the most important thing. That's something we come, we do yoga here, and we do asana, pranayama, and pratyahara, and meditation, and all this. To me, my yoga starts when I get out of here. Because when, when I get in the jungle, then I have to practice all this, and it starts with the yamas and the yamas again. Otherwise, there is nothing. So, what uh, to me, the other limbs just help me to go out there and start practicing my mindfulness of who I am. That's how I see, oh, not yoga, uh, any spiritual practice. Okay. I think it's not the end, it's just the beginning, the tool that allows us to do the real practice afterwards. And in time? Yeah, I just add. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit afraid of doing that because it's it, but <clears throat> so you mentioned that you, um, your first sangha is going toward a situation where the, the, the teacher was exposed uh, of doing inappropriate sexual something. <clears throat> now I'm going through that at the moment. Uh, so Patab Joyce, who we have up here, he has he died in 2009. So he has uh, his wheels at the moment. Um, it has come up to the surface very clearly that he's been teach- that he's been touching many women inappropriately, sexually inappropriately touching their lady parts, as they would call it in India, um, <clears throat> while teaching. So there was nothing going on in the back room and all that kind of stuff. But in the in the shala, he would have wandering hands on some students and not on other students. So we've all heard about that over the years, but in my I've never seen it, never experienced it. My wife has never seen it, never experienced it. <clears throat> so, and um, so over the, all these years, I thought, eh, this is Ashtanga Yoga. We're up against each other when we are, we're doing all this assisting, adjusting. And when you do that, the body gets close. And sometimes there's collisions, you know, sometimes my elbow uh, touches something that it shouldn't be touching, and I try to be as accurate as I can. And that's pretty much uh, was my justification of, of what has gone on with Tabby Joyce over these years. Now, um, then Me Too came along, uh, the whole Me Too uh, uh, movement. And in that regard, uh, these um, uh, the, the women that have felt that he touched them inappropriately, they, they got a platform to speak again. And they brought it up. And this time I heard my <coughs> friends talking about it. So it's like, oh, he did that to me. I was like, whoa, when did he do that? He did that in 2004 in May, when you were there. It's like, I didn't see it. He's like, no, but you were three spots over. But he did that to me. So <coughs> from a personal point of view, I had to ask myself, why did I not see that? You know, you could say, oh, it's good, you have your truth to you, focus on your own thing. But I didn't get it at all. You know, so maybe I was a little involved too uh, with myself, both on the mat and after the practice. So now we have this man who died when he was in his 90s, and this went down when he was in his 70s and his 80s, and um, now he's dead, so it's hard to reckon with. Now his grandson has taken over, and he's doing nothing of that. But uh, Patab Joyce is my teacher, and he sits deep in me, he sits with great love. So I am myself in a process right now where I'm trying to figure out how do you reckon with that? 
You know, it's like your grandfather, someone like points out that he's some kind of criminal, but he's dead and he brought you up and love is there. I'm sitting like in that situation trying to figure out what to do with that and I don't have a, a conclusion. I just know I'm, I'm in that confusing process about mm. that. <clears throat> but of course it is very disappointing and um, difficult because it's you know when we practice every day it's difficult to get on the mat every day so every excuse you can get you take it oh you know there was a little bit more coffee i i didn't make my practice today <laughs> so when your teacher comes out and has not obeyed by the yamas the way you would like him to or the niyamas then i sit here and i'm like is this system working do I need to get on my mat and so forth? And what I'm, the way I'm currently, my working mode in this is to divide the practice and the main. Mm. So the practice has been passed down through generations, and at some moment it came to Patapi Joyce, and it passed through Patapi Joyce onto his grandson. And I'm currently, and I'm not saying this is the end of the my. Reckoning is that the right word with it? But right now, kind of thing. So there's this guy who did lots of good and some bad, and now it's passed on. He's gone, and it's passed on to his grandson, Shalajos, uh, who is pursuing at least in in this particular aspect with no issue at all. And I practice under him now, so um, I'm trying to take the teaching and let the man be. Human, somehow, for the time being. I think that's all we have time for for mm -hmm. questionings. Yeah. So you think you guys want to end on that note? No. <laughs> 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 like, uh, Is there another question? Maybe one more question. Uh, <laughs> sure, there's one more question. Yeah. I've always been interested in the uh, brain function and how we can override brain functioning, I guess, if that's possible. And I often tell the students, so please correct me if I'm wrong and I'm not needing the wrong information that we can somehow rewire our brain patterning and <clears throat> pathways. Say, for example, I'm very flat foot, and standing asanas are very difficult for me. And I actually got to mention that at a couple of places, and there was a gentleman, an older man, he happened to be a neuroscience, and he was interested in the importance of yoga mm. to do with the brain. And he asked me to do a pose that could be difficult for me, so I put my leg, into half lotus and I folded forward and all he did was to observe my foot and I was able to hold it and I balanced and all of that and he said great and I thought I did my pose great but he said whoa 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 the battle that was going on my foot uh, there was no way that I physically should be able to be standing on that one leg having that flat foot the way that I had it but it was only possible through the fighting that uh, was happening in my muscles that was all coming from the brain 
my brain was overriding that and sending through the central nervous system the messages to pull me up. And ever since, I always noticed the student's feet, how they like move, when you see all these muscles moving like this. Micro adjustments. Right. It's the brain sending information to keep me up. So to me, it's something that internally I've always felt. And then mm -hmm. yoga, ancient tests will tell you you have to practice in order for you to know it, to, to know it and experience it. But it's a right to say that it is, we are rewiring the brain, or kind of, or is it through the central nervous system, the vagus nerve, whatever that might be, you're finding that state of ease and, and relaxation is something that is a war, and that eventually translates mentally, internally, spiritual, whatever, emotionally, at an emotional level. Yeah, everything you just said. Yeah, yeah. all of that. <laughs> Well, the word rewiring is a very loaded term, um, as is the word neuroplasticity. So you've heard that word before, neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to rewire itself, which is um, we found it can do through the adult life. And, uh, but neuroplasticity is almost a dirty word now, uh, because people are hijacking the word from neuroscience and using it to make claims that are not quite true, like lumosity and brain training which have been falsified and there's a lawsuit against these people and neuroscientists signed a letter and all those kinds of things so neuroplasticity you can rewire the brain to a certain extent some areas you can some areas you can't um, the hippocampus is not amenable at all to to uh, these these changes in, in certain senses although some parts like the other part of the brain uh, the ventricular system is um, neurogenesis and neuroplasticity happen, but like I, I'll give you a personal. So the answer to your the question is yes, you can rewire your brain to to a certain extent to train cognitively and connect the um, the physiological aspects of muscle tissue uh, with repatterning. So there are repatterning techniques, and like with I do hand balancing, and so like with hand balancing, it's the same thing. You you. When you get on your hands, you have all these micro adjustments that are happening. Those don't happen on a conscious level, right? Those happen on a, um, they don't happen on a cognitive level. Um, is it possible to rewire your brain using, so there's a phrase, neurons that wire together, I'm sorry, neurons that fire together, wire together. You guys have heard of that phrase, right? Right, so it, it like, I don't know if there's any um, actual evidence that I can point to, I probably can do more research on this for you, but uh, yeah, I, I think that there are, to a certain extent, it is possible to repattern certain neural pathways, motor pathways to better adjust and, you know, do poses better and so on and so forth, but there's limitations, it's not like a catch-all term, so you have to be very uh, cautious and skeptical with the, the word rewiring when you have it, so, uh, but to a certain extent, I would say yes, but a very qualified yes. Does that make, does, does anybody else know about this agree with me or disagree with me on that I buy exactly, I buy what you're saying. You buy it? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> was that good or was that yes? No. That's, that's, yeah, so. I, I agree and I, to add to that, that is basically the foundation upon which I try to base all of my neuromuscular retraining. So I'm looking for not just a physical change, a, a, an output where you're able to stand and not fall over, but I'm also looking to um, somehow tap into your nervous system in a way that allows your brain to pick up on new sensory signals 
Um, and sometimes that needs a little bit of facilitation preparation ahead of time. Maybe the plantar surface of your foot needs some kind of stimulation ahead of time. And then your brain starts to pick up on those signals mm -hmm. and then it can have a better output for balance in that regard. Yeah. You do that longer and longer and it gets easier and easier and there is a neuroplastic. That's change. plastic, yeah, that's exactly yeah. Right. yeah. So, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Did you have, I saw you raise your hand. Did you have a follow-up oh, question? Follow -up? No, I was just sort of confused. How does that differ, differ rewiring the brain with a placebo effect? I mean, I know placebo effect mm -hmm. will be blindly bleeding into something that will be like, what would the drawing line for that be? Between, between the placebo effect and rewiring yeah. or yeah, repatterning? Even like, if you think and believe it will be the same, somebody, you tell everybody, oh yeah, you can rewire your, your brain by doing something, that <coughs> turn then eventually. No, you're absolutely right. Like, so I study belief at the level of the... placebo effect, I believe that it's wrong there. Yes, no, and it, it, it definitely comes into play. So, uh, yeah, we study belief at the level of the brain. So, like, neurons... Uh, coming to like there's synaptics, uh, synaptic clefts, and neurons actually don't touch each other, right? Um, neurotransmitters travel across the synaptic cleft, and rewiring does not. It's it's a very technical term. It's called uh, synaptic dependent plasticity, or uh, long-term potentiation. is technical term. So it's the amount of um, synapses that uh, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here, but it's the amount of synapses. It's the way neurons connect. And um, those things happen, like when you believe something, that like that changes. Yeah. When you believe, when you strongly believe, it, it, you have changes on the neuronal level and the cellular level. Mm -hmm. um, so we can now, and this is very reductionistic in, in certain terms, right? You can now reduce the level of belief. There's even a field called neurotheology. Mm -hmm. um, the neuroscience of religious belief is, is now being investigated. Um, so those things do happen at the level of the brain, but it, there's a limitation to those sorts of things. And at the level of the body, the connection between the way the neurons work, the motor pathways, and the level of the body, um, it, it's questionable how much rewiring and repatterning can actually be, uh, become efficacious. Okay. So yeah, that's why I say it's a very qualified uh, yes. And you have to that's, they test it against the placebo effect, right? That's why you do studies like... Can you change your, your, well, I don't want to get, but what Bob was agreeing with what Bob was saying, actually. So, uh, there, well, let me say one thing. So there's a technique called neural repatterning technique, and it's used, um, so I have a certain disorder with hearing. It's called misophonia. And it's, uh, it's where certain sounds uh, ignite my fight-or-flight system, like certain repetitive sounds. And that's like hyperacusis, or it's related to tinnitus, if you've heard of tinnitus, or tinnitus, right? And so there's like a, there's a lot of people now, um, like functional neurologists, they are called who are using neural repatterning techniques to do this, um, and they claim some success. They don't claim success. so. That's why you need to like do a test. And, and a, what I'm emphasizing here is a study to really see if there's actual an effect. And it's not confirmation bias or cognitive bias. So that's being used in this misophonia thing that I have uh, without success. So yeah, at the level of the brain. Thanks for tuning in. That was our first knowledge event.
we did it on the topic is yoga good for me we kept it kind of general for this first one uh, we've been really inspired to do more events like this to bring our community together and talk about this practice talk about certain aspects of this practice so the next one that we had was on yoga and trauma and it already happened and we have the recording so it's going up soon and one that's coming up in the future is yoga and body image. So that one is the first weekend of June, and it's part of a larger event with workshops and panel discussions. And we're bringing in teachers from all over. All of these teachers are experts in trying to make this practice accessible to everyone. So making sure that everybody feels welcome to come onto their mat and practice and use the tool of yoga as a clear path to healing. So we hope you'll join us. You'll find more information on that event, that whole weekend event on our website in the workshops tab. Uh, and if you have any questions, you just want to reach out, you can reach out to us on Instagram at Miami Life Center, or you can email us info at MiamiLifeCenter.com. Hope to hear from you soon.